Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to that great Old Testament epic, the story of Job. We come to the end of the story, but I would have you turn to chapter 38, Job chapter 38. Now, someone has said, and I quote, a good sermon should have a good beginning and a good ending. And they should be as close together as possible. And when I find out which one of you said that, we'll have a talk, okay? We've been on a journey with Job, and I'm sure at times you have thought, when will we ever get past all the pain, the tragedy, and finally get some answers. There's someone in my life that I know and love. And this last year, they suffered a great emotional loss. And in this particular person's pain, which I understood, she said to me more than once, when I get to heaven... God has some explaining to do. Now, maybe you've never said that or articulated those words, but I would guess that a good number of you have had questions which to this moment still remain unanswered when you consider all you've ever been told about the goodness, the mercy and the grace of God. And folks, that's sort of what Job has been asking all these chapters, all the way here to chapter 38, when God finally begins to speak. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, out of the maelstrom, out of the volcano, not volcano, tornado, God finally speaks. And God says a lot. And you will notice that while God is speaking, it is not until the very last chapter that Job dares to speak again. And when he does speak, I want you to observe this with me, when he does speak, After God speaks, he has no more questions. And it's not that he's gotten answers. That is, answers relating directly to all of his travail. But it is instructive to observe that after God speaks, Job has No more questions. In fact, more positively stated, he has one grand and glorious confession of faith and even repentance toward his sovereign creator and Lord. That's a journey that I would welcome 
Oh, I'm not volunteering to walk in the footsteps of Job or even begin to come close to what he endured. But, but I want to know that God, when he speaks, says all I need to hear and that all I would be left with was a confession of adoration and true faith and trust in his sovereignty. I hope to point the way toward that. You'll have to work this out, folks. In your own experience, each new day, should the Lord tarry as we enter a new year. But before I dare speak anymore, would you help me by your prayers and pray with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your ways with Job. How much this man's story teaches us the wonder and the mysteries of your sovereign rule and reign in each of our lives. As Job heard your voice in the whirlwind, we ask you to give us ears to hear what you want to say to us this day. We ask this in the mighty and wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Some years ago now, the editor of the Los Angeles Times, Jack Miles, a gifted writer, gave the world a bestseller. Jack Miles, I want to say first and foremost, is no theologian, and I suspect that he may not even be a true believer in Christ. So you can appreciate the fact back then that I personally was astounded by the audacity with which he titled his best-selling book. Here it is on the cover in bold letters. God, and under that, a biography. God, a biography by Jack Miles. I was thinking at least he didn't claim it to be an autobiography of God. In the beginning of that book, Miles notes, and I quote, whether the ancient writers who wrote the Bible created God or merely wrote down God's revelation of himself, their work has been, in literary terms, he says, a staggering success. Yes, the Bible is still the best-selling book in all the world for all time. Now, at one point, Miles aptly remarks, and I quote again, He says, much that is said of God in the Bible is rarely preached because, examined too closely, it becomes a scandal. The account would contain, after all, the God who was willing to visit the most dreadful calamities upon Job, the upright good man, to sort of settle a gaming debt. With Satan. End of quote. Uh, That's how secularist uh, Jack Miles saw it. In fact, in the balance of that book, for Miles, the serpent in the garden comes as a sign, he says, early in the Bible, that God the Creator does indeed make mistakes. 
Miles also assumes that God may be indeed surprised or taken back when his chosen people suffer defeat and dispersal. When in short, his plans do not seem to unfold as he planned them. So God is not revealed in Miles' version of God as omnipotent, but rather impotent, isn't he? Throughout most of his biography of God, Miles makes God to sound like a patient in therapy. That God is waiting on his creatures, us, men and women, to help him figure out What he has wrought in creation. He sort of has this view of God that having created a beautiful world in a paradise is now sitting back on his haunches like the thinker and saying, what went wrong here? What have I done? And Miles says, poor God, he needs us to help him find his true identity. I'll remind you, this was a best-selling book in our culture. Imagine that. Imagine indeed, because the God of Miles' best-selling book is not anything, is he, like the God of the Bible. The Bible, after all, is, I remind us all, the only authorized version of God's story, God's Holy Word is, in fact, biography. It is autobiography. And I answer Miles and all others of his particular stripe. Give me the God of Job. Give me the God of Job, even with all of its mystery. And let Miles and the rest of the world try to define the Almighty. But I want to remind Miles and all others, the one time we have recorded in the Bible that God, the Almighty Creator, actually laughs, laughs. He is laughing in derision of people like Jack Miles. And the long line of fools who say in their heart that there is no God. Only the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Thus saith the word of God. Now, give me Job's God at the same time. I want to say, having been a student of Job, Job's God is indeed a fearful God. Why, Job's God almost scared him to death. But at the same time, Job's God is a God that never forsakes his own. And if in the end, Job himself is more than satisfied If Job is left with no more questions, let alone accusations, if God proves to be full of compassion and mercy, if God rewards Job's faith 
a hundredfold if Job's intense sufferings in time become a greater crown of glory for eternity than give me Job's God anytime and forever. We're getting to the essence of this book. That is to say, God being God and me being me do whatever you please. Or as Job said early to his wife, shall we just receive good and not bad things from a God who is sovereign over all? If Jack Miles had really studied the book of Job, which I know he didn't study any part of the Bible, he would readily have discovered that God... Not man has the last word. That not only does God know exactly what he is doing for his own glory, but even for Job's ultimate good. Such a student of the Bible would also discover that God doesn't find it necessary to explain or defend himself to Job or for that matter, anyone else. There's a sense in which the goal of my preaching, not just this message, but the goal of my preaching, the Word of God, is that you and I would more and more find it unnecessary to have questions. That we simply acknowledge who He is and His absolute right to do as He pleases, knowing at the same time He has revealed himself to be a God who is good and gracious and merciful. And how could he say it louder than with the pounding of nails through the hands and the feet of his only begotten? Jesus Christ on the cross is God's answer to every question, every accusation. It is the answer to every evil. And I thank God it is the answer to every one of my sins, for they are many. God doesn't once mention Satan as the author of Job's suffering. For all I know, Job had to wait to go to heaven to know what it was all about. God does not reveal to Job any satisfying reasons at all for his calamities. He only gives what Job really needs. Not what satisfies our aching questions, but that which makes all questioning of God and His ways totally unnecessary. We are going to note at the outset, here in chapter 38, that when God finally speaks, it isn't to answer Job's questions, but rather for God This is how turned around we get. This is how much God turns it around. It'll be God who asks the questions. He will be the examiner. He will question Job. Now, a student, after all, may ask his teacher questions. That's a good thing. But isn't it also true? It isn't until the teacher has asked the student questions, we call it a test or examination, that we can discern if any 
real learning has taken place. It is not for Job to examine God, for God to pass some test. Jack Miles would say, that's what it's about. It is for God to ask the questions that meet the real need. After the fall, redemption began with a question. And it wasn't Adam speaking, and it wasn't Eve, and it wasn't the serpent. The voice of the Almighty began to proclaim a gospel in the midst of wretched fallenness to say, Adam, where art thou? God comes with questions. And out of the examination, he brings redemption. Now, just as a sampling of God's approach to Job, we'll read 18 verses of chapter 38. You know, uh, it was Christmas morning this week, very early. I was the first one up. I usually am. I want to see if anything's got my name on it. The house was quiet, not a creature was stirring. I don't know if we have mice or not, but they weren't stirring. I was alone with the Lord. And I thought, let me be responsible to this text. So on Christmas morning, I began reading at verse 38, or chapter 38, and I did not finish until I came to the very last verse of this book of Job. And I have to tell you, I had a bit of epiphany on Christmas morning before anyone was up. You know, it was very cloudy and it rained even part of the day, but I don't know if you were up early enough or whether this happened just over my house, just for me, but the clouds had parted momentarily and the sun was rising. Now, we boast in our sunsets here, but on Christmas morning, as the sun was rising, it was painting the sky. And then my bare feet... I went out to the driveway to collect the newspaper, having just read the more important word for the day out of God's word. And there was a glory for me that shone all around. I told my wife, if nothing else had happened the rest of the day, I had been ha- I'd had, by God's grace, a very, very special, unusual Christmas morning. I don't usually talk about personal experience I do believe everything has to come back to what's revealed in the word but having read all of God's questions to Job and and getting a sense of why these even peculiar questions were being asked I mean here's Job barely recovered from his boils and God chooses to talk to him about a hippopotamus a hippopotamus it's there you ought to Read all of these verses. I wish I could live in the presence of that moment, but I can tell you for those few moments, I never in a long time have ever felt so totally surrendered to my sovereign God to do whatever he pleases with this unworthy individual. I had no questions. But I had a plea, and with tears, I cried in the middle of my driveway, looking at God paint the sky 
And from my heart, I said, Oh God, make my days count. That whatever remains, make my days count for your glory. Knowing he reserves the right to give me only one day at a time. I had a keen sense. Will I be your pastor throughout all of 2010? Will there be an all of 20? I don't know. I know God knows. And it was enough. And I tell you, folks, if this were the last sermon I get to preach in my life. I purpose that it would give you a spirit such as I enjoyed to be able to say, whatever time remains, Lord, make my days count for your glory. Verse 1, chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you. I'll ask the questions, Job. You instruct me. It's exam time. Job, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? You know, that's a verse that says, as God was speaking the very universe and our world into existence, the angels were all seated and they were applauding. God says, where were you, Job? You weren't privileged to be there. As I begin to read at verse 8, I wish I had to, we should probably do five more sermons on Job just on these last few chapters. But you need to dig there some yourself. These last lines in these last chapters, God's dialogue has been the fascination of some of the world's most renowned Are you ready? Scientists. Those who are not so arrogant in their own understanding of things as to be intrigued by ancient Hebrew poetry, even if they are not believers in Christ, have said, if Columbus didn't sail the ocean blue till, what was it, 1492? See, I remember. And most of the world of his day thought that surely his little ships would sail off the end if the world was flat. Take this ancient writing and scientists have been absolutely befuddled and intrigued that what God says about the nature of his own creation, that the globe here is represented as spherical, that the line sent out is viewed as the orbit 
something unknown after Job for centuries upon centuries of time. That in itself is its own special study. Well, verse 8, we've got to keep moving on. God says, who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no further. You know what that is? Listen, I lived a good portion of my life and ministered on the Jersey Shore. We could walk and watch the crashing waves from our doorstep any time we chose. And a while back, I had come across this verse and was able to tell my children, do you know that when the wave crashes and the foam driven before it and it comes and it stops, that wave stopping right there has received its permission from the God who created all things and Colossians tells us holds it together. And here he says there are boundaries set. You need to know that when tsunamis come and when the boundaries are crossed, and I'll take the criticism that comes for saying this, but for sovereign purposes, we dare not say we understand. Only God allows it to happen. Come to verse 12, shall we? God is speaking of his mighty power. Have you ever in your life Commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld. And what you see here is God saying there's something about natural creation, sunrise and sunset. There is something about light and darkness in the world that we observe that has to it a spiritual meaning as well. And you know that's true. In salvation alone. In the New Testament, it is described as God calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, what we have forgotten is what Job needed to be reminded of. That this very environment in which we behold the beauty of the earth, whether at night his heavens declaring his glory or during the day, uh, the earth declaring it's his handiwork. What we have lost, what Darwin did so much damage to seek to do, we have lost the fact that everything we can see and touch and smell that is part of our very physical existence in this material world has a spiritual component. Does Job really need a lesson about a hippopotamus? We ought to read what God says about a hippopotamus. I watched a whole National Geographic program once on a hippopotamus. I was absolutely amazed, but I didn't know that Job had already had the lesson. Because Job in his day would have been familiar with a hippopotamus. And he would have known what unusual a creature it was. And how God had so perfectly made it for his own purposes. Wish we had time to... Study the hippopotamus. 
But he says in verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea? I didn't know till just some years ago there were springs under the sea. Have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Isn't it amazing that verse 16 is a question that still hasn't been answered in our modern times? We have put a man on the moon. We're talking about Mars next. But no one, no one, no one has plunged the depths of the very oceans on this planet where we live. Have you, Job, walked the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Now, for the sake of time, I have no choice. I will tell you that as you read on, you will discover, basically, that God is sounding forth a threefold truth about himself to Job in the form of questioning. And what God reveals to Job leaves him without any questions. Only, as I said, a grand and glorious confession of faith. And even the righteous man enjoys by the mercies of God a deeper repentance, which could only bring him ever closer to the very God who made him. Let me give you that threefold uh, revelation in these following verses, the ones we read and those I don't have time to read this morning. But here's what you would discover. Number one, God speaks of his unfathomable wisdom. God is smart beyond any measurement known to man. He busts through the IQ graph. There's nothing to compare. God, in his unfathomable wisdom, it's revealed to Job through God's unanswerable Questions. By the way, Job flunks this exam. All he can say is, no, I wasn't there. No, I didn't know that about the hippopotamus. I didn't know that about the oceans. I didn't know that about the day of creation. I didn't know these things. You see, Job, for as smart as God is, is like the rest of us. We're really stupid. When it comes to understanding much at all of who God really is. Humbling, isn't it? It's what God's doing. He's humbling a righteous man, even as he suffers. Secondly, God goes on to demonstrate his unlimited power. Job, were you there when I did all these things? It's why the Bible, folks, begins with the story of creation and has God simply Speaking and things that were not came into existence. The Gospel of John tells us there is nothing in all the universe that exists but what the Word, who is Jesus Christ, spoke into existence. And Colossians, as I mentioned earlier, tells us he holds it all together. God speaks of his unfathomable wisdom, goes on to demonstrate his unlimited 
power. And then he will speak to Job of his uncompromised judgments. That's those references I made to God using the language of creation, but talking about the casting out of the wicked because God is holy and a judge of all that he has made, especially those who exist in his universe who are now in rebellion against him. Now, I want to draw a few preliminary conclusions and for a few moments bring the application to our hearts. God, help me. Let's draw some awesome preliminary conclusions. The question for us is, so what can Job or anyone say or do when God has the last word? When he speaks with unfathomable wisdom, when he operates with unlimited power, when his Judgments are perfect and always uncompromised. What is the answer? What can Job say? The answer is, are you ready? Nothing. That's exactly what happens. Look at chapter 40. Then the Lord said to Job, verse 2, by the way, this is how I know that Job sinned a bit. The righteous man, in the extremity of his sufferings, did in fact have a breakdown theologically. He too said some things that weren't right about God. So the Lord said to Job, chapter 40, verse 2 now, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Now Job dares to speak again. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am, my translation says, insignificant. What can I reply to you? The answer is nothing. Notice what he does in verse 4. What an example of the extreme form of highest worship. He says, I lay my hand on I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice, I will add nothing. And then the questioning begins again. God questions Job. You know, In a beautiful new sanctuary, Lord willing, should God grant us his favor in that? It probably won't happen. I don't know. God can do anything. But are you aware that if we came to worship on a Lord's day, that instead of someone saying, take now your hymnals and turn to hymn number 236, That we would enter through the second set of doors. Well, you don't see them there yet, but we wanted to separate the profane, which is outside, come into the holy place and pass again into the holy of holies. Symbolic. Our architecture is being driven by biblical principle. I, I can't wait to get back in here when it's all done and begin to point to things and say, this is what the Bible says as object lesson. What a place it'll be to worship. But we will not have worshipped in the purest, 
highest form unless somehow we were to pass through those new doors and fall flat in our faces and stay the solid hour and no one would speak a word. There will be silence in heaven. The figurative language of Revelation is that it will last for a period of time because we won't even be able to sing his praises. Did you know that the Holy God has to condescend to listen to our hymns of praise? He has to condescend to receive such imperfect worship from such fallen people. Oh, that God would give us, before we go home, at least seasons of moments here and there, such as I enjoyed for all of two minutes on a Christmas morning, standing with bare feet on wet pavement, watching God paint the sky, having just reminded me from Job that he's the author of it all. It is such a good thing, folks, to feel that small in order to embrace and enjoy the God that is so very, very big. Got all that I didn't get to preach. It'll come out in other times and places. But I want to give you something for the New Year's 2010, should the Lord tarry as we go. I want you to have a New Year's resolution that is absolutely fail-proof. Now, none of those that I've ever made have worked for me in one year and out the other. Could I put it that way when it comes to resolutions? But I want to give you three words. And I want to suggest you might be blessed as you enter upon this New Year's Eve and you welcome the first day of the New Year to have these three words handy. Maybe tucked in your Bible, written across your bulletin, wherever you'd like to record it. None of you have that good a memory. Here's three words for 2010. The first word is trust. Trust. The second word is rely. It's like trust, but a little different. You'll see. And the third word is to plead. P-L-E-A-D. You see, God, by asking questions of Job, left Job with his hand over his mouth. What could he do? What could he say? At first, the answer is nothing, really. And yet, as you read to the conclusion and you see Job repenting even further than the righteous man ever had in all his days, acknowledging God's wisdom, acknowledging God's power, acknowledging God's judgments, those three things, and Job was humbled to the to the dirt, only to be lifted up. That the one who is unworthy would be lifted up by the one who is all worthy and worthy alone of praise. The New Year's resolution is, this is how I'm going to go into the New Year if I'm given breath in additional days. I want to trust in his wisdom. Should I say not my own? I don't even have to say that. I want to trust in his wisdom 
I want to rely on His power. And because His judgments are always right, I want to plead for His mercies. And with Job, I want to be found repenting even as I look up to give praise to the one who is my Redeemer.